I took a chance with the understanding that I might completely fail, right? But if you're not willing to take the chance, if you're afraid, well, it's gotta be perfect, you're never going to get out of your own way. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to this show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently starting a business all around helping women get to the root cause of their PMS symptoms and hormonal imbalances. If you've suffered from extreme cramps, fatigue, and bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Helene Godin, to our show today. Helene is the founder and CEO of the By The Way Bakery, a one-of-a-kind, small, old-fashioned bakery where each treat is handmade, gluten-free, dairy-free, and certified kosher. Helene wasn't always a baker. She gave up her successful 22-year career as a media attorney because she felt burnt out and wanted to do something completely different something that wasn't in corporate and wasn't in law. Despite not being a cook or a baker, Helene's love for research never left. She used her research skills and her relentless spirit to learn how to bake gluten-free goods that are tasty, if not tastier than the traditional baked goods. She believed that anything given enough time could work, and she went all in and poured herself into baking and developing this unique flour mix that became the cornerstone of her tasty, beautifully made gluten-free baked goods. Fast forward to today, by the way, bakery, is a cult favorite and loved by many celebrities and has a devoted following over the course of the past 10 years. The bakery currently has four locations and is in over 80 Whole Foods stores nationwide. In this episode, we'll talk to Helene about her experience starting fresh after her successful law career, going all in to build something that is truly hers, and why failure and taking chances have helped her become the successful entrepreneur that she is today. Welcome to the show, Helene. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. And I want to jump right in. So the first question that stands out, you had a very successful career in law. You were climbing up the ranks. You were in a senior position. You worked at a bunch of reputable firms. I'm curious, what was it that really pushed you to make a big transition and leave that life? I know that sometimes it's a gradual thing that we know and builds up over time. And sometimes it might be a single moment in your life that helps you make that decision for change. So I'd love to know from you, was it one or the other or what really pushed you to make this big leap and change in your life? So I was really fortunate because for all 22 years, I worked with great people and I did great projects, but I was exhausted. I was burnt out. Prior to joining Bloomberg, my last project and my last job was I was general counsel at Audible and oversaw from the inside. We, of course, had outside counsel, but from the inside oversaw the sale of Audible to Amazon. Huge, you know, $315 million deal, the biggest deal by far that I had ever done. And then I went to Bloomberg, because I knew if I had stayed at 
Amazon slash Audible, I'd have clients on the East Coast reporting to colleagues on the West Coast and I'd be dead. Yeah. Because if you say jump, I not only say how high, I research anti-gravity lessons because I don't believe in doing anything in a half-assed manner. So I was smart enough to know that that wasn't going to be the right thing. So I went to Bloomberg where, again, the work was really interesting and the people were great. But I was just, I was done. I'd done everything I needed to do as an attorney. So it was nothing about that job per se. It was just a moment in time, as you had said, where I was so tired and working so hard that I really had to quit with no plan to move forward. Yeah. And that takes me to my next question. It's something that resonates a lot with my life as well, but so much of your ego and identity, especially if you've been killing it in a certain career is tied to what you're up to and you leaving that, not really knowing what the next step is because you didn't have time to think about it. You were working crazy hours and, you know, fully invested in your job. What did that feel like to you? Did you feel naked? Did you feel awkward? Did you feel uncomfortable? That is such a great question. It's perfect because I really felt as I was going through the process of conceptualizing and building By the Way Bakery over the course of a year, that was I ready to stand naked on Main Street? Because that's kind of what it was. I was the mom who like would race into back to school night at the last minute or who would show up at the school event in my suit because we wore suits back then. And I was the attorney. I was the attorney mom. And I wasn't going to be that anymore. And I was going to try this new venture where success was very questionable at best. You know, I had great stories to tell as my master of the universe legal career, and that wasn't going to be the case. So it's really, really a scary thing to do. And back in the day, I did everything, everything, including we were in a small local supermarket and they asked me to come and do a demo to give samples out. And I came on Super Bowl Sunday (laughs) (laughs) where people want Doritos. They do not want cookies. You're right. And they set up my table with my back to the produce. So I'm freezing and I'm shilling cookies and people have no interest because they want to race home to watch the game. And I thought, no, this is still this new suit in air quotes fits. So you still felt so despite not having that traction and still not really having your idea fully vetted, you still felt confident in your gut that this is where you were meant to be. You never had any regret about the transition. No. And that day was about a year or so after we'd opened our first store. Okay. And it felt right. I had a similar experience before we opened the store where I have a friend, Lori, who has a wonderful company called Into Green that sells knitwear made of upcycled fibers. So she would collect fibers at the mills and reweaves them into gorgeous blankets and hats and socks. And she was having her annual warehouse sale. And it was a few months before I was going to open the first By the Way Bakery. And she said, would you like to get, I was just giving it out, but I had a career where I didn't see daylight in Westchester where I live. It was, you know, I got on the train before sunrise and got home way after sunset. And here I was giving out cookies and hot cider 
And would this new persona fit? And it did. I mean, you know, it was a lot of local moms who, you know, they picked up all my slack because they were the class mother. And my husband would actually be the one baking the brownies to bring in for the class party. And I was now a different person. And it was good to test drive it and learn that I liked it. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah. And we'll dig into the early days of how the idea came about. But there's one question I want to touch on before we go more into your story that I love so much is I actually heard in a previous podcast 
that you said that you don't think you would have been an entrepreneur if it wasn't for your husband's influence. And when you said that on the same podcast, your husband strongly disagreed and jumped right in and said, you've always had entrepreneurial traits over the years. So looking back now as someone who spent time in corporate, and there's a lot of women listening, what do you think were some of the traits that your husband was alluding to that you were showing in that different life of yours in the corporate world that you are now shining as an entrepreneur that you are today? A few things. One, it was, as I had mentioned earlier, my determination to exceed expectations that you don't do something halfway. If you make a commitment, whether it's to, you know, represent a client or sell a cookie, it should be the very best you can do. The other thing is tenacity. Like I do not give up. If you give me a project, I will work and work and work until I get it right. And I think those two things are required. But the third thing is a willingness to fail as an entrepreneur. And that doesn't mean that I I would fail as a lawyer, but I was willing to experiment and say, okay, this is a failure. So how am I going to change my approach, whether it's to the contract or the negotiation or the argument for court or the strategy? So let me try it this way. No, it's not going to work. Take out my metaphorical eraser and start over. Yeah. And I think as you've alluded to, you've always been problem solving in your life. And I think that's a huge trait for an entrepreneur. You know, people say, well, owning a bakery is so different than being a lawyer, but no, they're both problem solving. I used to try and figure out how to save a cartoon character from the public domain. And now I have to trick every day. We have to trick rice into thinking it's wheat. Yeah, exactly. And I'm so glad you expanded on that because I think a lot of women listening today, they want to be entrepreneurial, but they think they're not on the right path to get there or their job might not set them up. But I love to hear your experience and your background on how you did have certain skills that were translatable. And I love that your husband always knew you were an entrepreneur before you now are killing it in the world of this bakery and and everything you've accomplished. So I love hearing your story there. So going back a little bit, you know, you finally left your job. You mentioned you didn't really know necessarily what your next steps were. So this stage in your life is always fascinating for me because I think a lot of women are kind of in that in-between. How did you really explore or what were those initial steps you took to uncover what was passionate or what you were passionate about and what you were potentially going to bring to life with a business? So the word that popped up the most was community, that I wanted to be more enmeshed in my community because as I had alluded to before, I took the train before the sun came up. I got home after the sun came down often. And so I wanted a local business that I would experience what was going on in my cute little town. So that was important. But community in a more micro sense in that I wanted a business that would bring people together. Mm. It wasn't just a matter of me meeting my neighbors, but what could I do that would bring people to the table? And that's In thinking about that, it was, hey, I could come up with a concept that involves bringing people to the table. And my first thought was, all right, I'll open a restaurant. Oh, no, too many nights. I still have teenagers at home. (laughs) And it evolved into this crazy idea of opening a bakery. And I did a gluten-free, dairy-free bakery because the town is tiny Mm -hmm. and I had to have a reason for people to travel to come to the bakery. And I love the idea that if, and this is 
where the tenacity kicks in and the research, if I could come up with baked goods that were as good as, if not better than conventional counterparts, then I've done it. Then the person who has a food issue doesn't have to have the fruit plate. Not that I'm anti-fruit plate. All right, I'm kind of anti-fruit plate in that context. So, yeah. So you have this idea, you know, you're tinkering around whether you should start a restaurant or a bakery. And I know when you were sharing with your family, they offered you a quick, reasonable objection, right? Because you never cooked since you always worked. You weren't a baker. So how did you deal with, I guess, their somewhat criticism? And how did you learn this whole new world that you had zero experience in? So... And this is a good lesson for your listeners. I took a chance. There's an expression, go out on a limb. It's where the best fruit is. And I took, or sweetest fruit. I took a chance with the understanding that I might completely fail, right? But if you're not willing to take the chance, if you're afraid, well, it's gotta be perfect. You're never going to get out of your own way. Yeah. Exactly. And it's interesting because I now know, you know, both your sons are much older and they've told you they're so thankful you're engaged in your career and they think you're a better parent. But how do you think you've changed as a mother to your younger sons? Well, my sons are now in their 20s and we share business advice. It's wonderful that, you know, I'll call and say, you know, Mo, I have an HR problem or Alex, I have a logistics problem. And they are great because now in this playing field, we're kind of equal. When they were little and I was the crazy workaholic lawyer, they were kind of thankful that I took a lot of my energy and transferred it into my work and didn't, didn't become the helicopter mom that would have made them crazy. Exactly. I love that. That's so funny. Well, it's beautiful to hear the connection, the relationship you have with them at another level. I worked with my family in their business for about a year and it was so awesome, like talking about business and you're working with your family in different ways. It was really, really beautiful. So one thing you mentioned in another interview is not only did you learn how to bake and create recipes by scratch, you know, many months in your kitchen, trial and erring and failing, like you mentioned, but you really evaluated every single ingredient and you looked at the cost to see if it's a viable business very, very early on, which I'm a huge proponent of. I think sometimes people have to backtrack after they've launched the product and they realize, you know, the costs aren't great. So take us through the journey, because I think this will be very helpful for a lot of people listening, just how you kind of came up with those early, early products. So the first thing I had to do was come up with our flour mix because gluten-free baking is not just, while I said we trick rice into thinking it's wheat, it actually has to be a blend of different grains and starches. At least that was my approach. So it was experimenting with that. And then it took me about four months to come up with the flour mix and then finding the six key bakery products at the same time that would work with this mix. And so no purveyors would talk to me. They don't want to talk to you to you have, like, do you have a credit record? Well, no. Do you at least have a storefront? No. Do you have a lease? No. So what I did is I worked with someone who helped me set up this spreadsheet that I am using to this day. Exactly the same spreadsheet. So I just looked on Amazon for chocolate prices or bulkfoodservicedirect.com or I would go to Whole Foods to look at the pricing and put them all in to see, can I afford this brand of chocolate? What happens if I use 
this brand of vanilla versus this brand of vanilla? And will I get the same quality from it? And the way it would work is that the first page was a list of all the ingredients and their price. And this was very helpful, actually, because it was the price at retail. And I knew that that was my worst case scenario. And price at retail, and then it would speak to every other sheet, which was the recipes. And I could look at it and see, well, what if I make it a little bigger, a little smaller? What if I play with this? Or even is this just a viable product? Right. I mean, I was speaking to someone because I try and pay it forward. And I was speaking to an entrepreneur and she's working on a product that involves various like different SKUs will have different spices. And she said, by the way, could you use five pounds of sumac? And I said, no, I don't really need sumac. And I said, that highlights a problem for you. Because if you pick esoteric, expensive ingredients that you have to buy in bulk, but you don't have the demand, then while you think a teaspoon of sumac is three cents, you have to factor in, but you had to buy five pounds of it. And you're not going to use those five pounds in your cookies unless you're Nabisco. Exactly. There's so many variables to think about, but I love that because I created a product that's all around grounded seeds to help women's hormones. And I did a very similar approach. The worst case scenario, you go online, you do simple Google research, right? Anybody can do that with whatever they want to make. And then you start reaching out to wholesalers. And then to your point, you look at, you know, you could get excited that, oh, I could get the cost down, but I have to get like 500 pounds and you don't even have a facility yet. So there's so many variables to go through, but I love that that was so important for you early on. And just as important for you to dial in the right recipes with the right cost, because you wanted to create a sustainable and profitable business from the early stages, which I think really alludes to a lot of the success you've built for yourself today, which is awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Because if you find that the ingredients in your single cookie, did it cost you $8 a cookie? Yeah. <laughs> in ingredients, that's really going to be a problem. <laughs> exactly. And some people don't even know the number. So that's even like 101, know the cost of everything you're making. That's super, super important. And so, you know, you're creating these mixes, you're looking at the cost of everything. How did you do, I guess, quote unquote, market research to see, are people liking your gluten-free products? Is it something that, you know, you're ready to bring into this world? So when I first started, I wanted to cast as wide a net as possible. And my husband and I, at the time, he was addicted to this wonderful vegan ice cream shop that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, if it was 10 by 10, it was big. Like they had to close the shop on Mondays to bring out the equipment to make the vegan ice cream. Wow. Because there was no room. And then otherwise, who knows where they kept the equipment. But Anyway, and it got me thinking about, well, I will be a vegan bakery, vegan, gluten-free, kosher. And it is doable. It is totally doable, but it was not doable for me. And the way I learned it was that I would go to friends and neighbors and friends of neighbors to have them be my taste testers. And anyone, anyone who got a box of anything, I would say, here it is, be brutally honest. Don't hold back because you will be doing me a huge disservice if you tell me it's delicious when it's not. And I still have the email from my friend, Jenny Rosenstrack, 
who is an incredibly successful blogger. She was kind enough to write about me early on called Dinner Love Story. And she just came out with her newest cookbook, The Weekday Vegetarian. Anyway, I have the email from Jenny in 2010 before I opened the shop. And I had just, I gave up on the vegan thing. It just wasn't working. And I dropped off a box. She knew to be brutally honest. And she sends me an email that says, what a difference an egg makes. (laughs) (laughs) The littlest things, right? Like I'm not even a cook, but the littlest things you're like, oh, that actually does make a big difference. (laughs) You know, and that means that we are not a vegan bakery, but I thought, well, but we can still be a dairy-free bakery. And if we're a dairy-free bakery, that means we're a kosher parv bakery, which means you can eat our dessert both with your chicken dinner and your blintzes. So it's like mini pivots all the time as you build your business. Like, oh my God, I can't use sumac in my cookies because I can't make five pounds worth of cookie. You know, I won't be using all five pounds. Like, so how do I change it? Because if you get stuck on a certain idea, you're not going to succeed. You have to accept this doesn't work, but how can I tweak it? And I'd love to hear, because I'm sure this is something you deal with all the time, but like, how often are you pivoting, whether it's in your recipes now or your business, just kind of looking at your your day-to-day life? Oh, all the time where, I mean, particularly, particularly during this period where, you know, those supply chain shortages (laughs) that you're reading about, they are so true. (laughs) And so... We have to figure out what can we substitute, what product, you know, we can't make this product anymore because we can't get the sprinkles. So what can we do that has different sprinkles that also are certified gluten-free, certified dairy-free that the rabbi approves of that will still taste delicious that we can sell to our clients? Yeah, exactly. And I, I love hearing that because some people think, okay, it needs to be perfect. There's only one way to do it. But even when your business is thriving, you are constantly pivoting, figuring out how to problem solve. It's just part of a DNA of being a business owner at the end of the day. So love to hear your perspective on that. That's absolutely true. Because if you feel like this is my recipe, when I say recipe, I mean, in like, this is the product or the service I am selling. And there are no substitutions, no exceptions there will be no success in the long run. Exactly. And I was telling you a bit about this before the interview, but I just recently launched a business where now a month and a half in, and my idea was, let me learn as much as I can, right? Let me get as many customers. And like you did with your friend, be brutally honest, what's working, what's not working, how can we pivot? So that's been my mentality. And it's been super helpful from day one. So if you can think that way in whatever business you're in, it's only going to benefit you. So love that you talked about that. So thinking about that first bakery, I know community was so important and for you to create something in your neighborhood, right? That people can gather around and hang out in. You know, one thing I'm wondering, entrepreneurship, there's so many highs and lows, right? There's some days you're like, oh, I got this. I'm so excited. My idea is coming to life. And then there's some days where you might have an off day where you're questioning, okay, should I really be doing this? Or you just might not feel as excited because maybe something small has happened. This specific bakery that you opened up in your neighborhood, did you ever think to yourself, man, if I fail, everyone I know is going to know because it's in your community? This is the naked on Main Street thing. I'm exposing myself to my friends and neighbors and it might not work. Mm-hmm. And you have to get your head around that concept because otherwise you're going to be too timid to leap. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the leaping. So the one thing I did is my Hastings shop has a very beautiful painting 
by a local artist named Peggy Blizzard. And I bought that painting thinking, if this doesn't work, <laughs> at least I've got the painting. I'll find a spot in my living room. I love that. No, all of these small things that you do, right? It's like the mental game you play with yourself. That's funny. Well, I'm glad it's not in your living room. I'm sure it's still in the store right now that everybody's enjoying. But... <laughs> yes. And in fact, we are moving one storefront over on the Upper West Side, which was the second store I opened because the current store is a whole 445 square feet, which is nothing. And that is from front door to back sink. And we're going to go to a whole 700 square feet. And there's room for another Peggy Blizzard painting. I love that. That's super exciting. The little things you can get excited about, right? That's awesome. Well, you know, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your move into wholesale. So outside of your bakery outlets, you know, wholesale has continued to be a a larger aspect of your business. So going back to those early days when you were ready to start the wholesale side of the business, how did you get into your first Whole Foods? I know there were some funny stories of you going yourself to try to meet with someone. So take us back to the hustle and what you were doing in those days. Well, hustle, you know, I'm still hustling in the sense that that's what you do as an entrepreneur every day. It's an honest hustle. If you don't believe in your product, don't do it. But to this day, you know, I go on a sales call because I, for the moment anyway, unless we get a little bigger, I want to be the one presenting it. But now it's a bit easier because first, let me tell you a funny story and then remind me and we'll get back to the whole foods. Yes, yes. But two months ago or so, I got an email, BTW at MSG. (laughs) And I thought, oh, another wacky ingredient. Someone wants me to put monsodium glutamate in my cookies. And I'm about to hit spam when someone in my office says, no, Madison Square Garden, how awesome is that? (laughs) How awesome. And we are now making our first shipment to Madison Square Garden. We're going to be in their gluten-free concession stand. That's huge. Congratulations. I love that. But Madison Square Garden, now we are big enough with enough of a reputation that I'm not cold calling. But there were many years where that's what I did. And with Whole Foods, along with other places, I would just show up with baked goods in the hope I would run into the right person. And I would give it to the person behind the bakery counter. I would give it to the person behind the cheese counter. Like anything to spread the word within the organization that people would notice me. And I befriended Julie, who at the time was the cheesemonger at my local Whole Foods. And Somehow chocolate was also part of her purview. And I met her when I was buying a lot of bulk chocolate for recipe testing purposes. And she, one day she said, she's here, she's here. The buyer is here. Like, funny thing, I brought my shopping bag of baked goods again. (laughs) And she was very nice and, you know, didn't think I was a complete crazy person. (laughs) Took the baked goods, apparently brought them back to corporate and Two weeks later, I got an email from the forager, as they're called in Whole Foods, who look for new local products and asked to participate in a bake-off where they had set aside 15-minute slots throughout the day for various local gluten-free bakeries to present. And I won. Yes. (laughs) And that's how we got in the first two Whole Foods 
And what Whole Foods does is they see how it sells as they should. They look at the data, just like I look at my sales data. And now we're in 80. I love that. I love that because you hear from so many people, you know, I don't have the relationship to get into Whole Foods, but with you, it's pure tenacity. You were going in there, building relationships, getting in front of the buyer. And what I love about that, you were also very patient for that moment to happen. You were still showing up, trying to make sure you can get in front of the right person. And it's actually interesting. I, you mentioned this in another interview, but I know you got a call. I think at this stage, you were still in the two, three Whole Foods. So you haven't really expanded yet. And you got a call in 2014 to be on the Upper East Side store and you hung up on the guy. So- No, I, d- I didn't hang up. Oh, I you didn't did. hang up. I did not hang up. What happened was JJ at the time was, and I don't know what his role is now, but he's the most wonderful man. Yeah. He was always really good to my business. Anyway, he called and said, Helene, you know, you're in two suburban locations. We're now opening what we think is going to be our biggest Whole Foods in the Northeast. It's going to be on 3rd Avenue and 87th Street, and we would love to carry your products. And I, I didn't hang up. I just said, JJ, I'm not ready. Yeah. I need another year. Yeah. And he basically said, we're Whole Foods. You don't get another <laughs> <Yeah>. year. <laughs> you got to figure out how to do it, or we're going to say next. I know at the time you were still creating all your products from your one of your bakeries, right? So how did you deal with the scale and really accept that order? Because I know that was a big deal for you at the time. It was not easy. We were hanging from the rafters. I mean, you know, we were baking. My Hastings shop was 1,200 square feet, which is really not particularly big because that was 400 square feet for retail and another 800 square feet for baking. Okay. And it was tiny, but we just like my core team and I knew we had to make it work. Mm -hmm. We just had to. And now I'm pleased to say that We are baking out of an 8,000 square foot facility and it's a commissary in that it's just baking and I have three trucks and two drivers. We have one backup truck in case one breaks and they deliver to the stores every night and they bring our products to the distributors who deliver it to the various Whole Foods. So it's a very different thing. And what I'm really excited about is we actually have an option on the space next door. We're going to go from 8,000 to 12,000 square feet. Wow. That's a dream. I have goosebumps as you're saying that. That is so awesome. And I'm curious though. So when that you got that bigger order from Whole Foods in the Upper East Side, was that the moment where you moved into the larger, the 8,000 no. square feet? Or what was the next step after that? Did you fulfill the orders from the smaller kitchen at the time? We did. It was crazy, oh, wow. crazy. And about that time, so in, in 2015, in November of 2015, we got a new head baker a woman named Kathy Duma. And if you are from the East Coast and of a certain age, you know and love Carvel. And Kathy started in high school working at Carvel. And one day, Carvel was one of the original models for franchising. Tom Carvel started it. And at his high point, there were, I think, 800 Carvels in a large geographic area. And Kathy was in high school And he walked in and he had this gravelly voice and he was really cheap. So he did his own voiceovers for his commercials. And he says, you kid, this woman needs someone to write on a cake. And she's like, Mr. Carvel, I'm 16 years old. I have no idea. He said, I can tell you got talent, kid, is the way she tells the story. And she went in the back and she said, hey, I kind of got talent. Anyway, Kathy worked for Carvel until the business was sold. And then she worked for a a startup bakery business that she helped grow into a a huge company. And then that company was sold and she answered an ad for a part-time cake decorator. And 
she is so not part-time <laughs> and she's been running my kitchen ever since. And she brought the skill set because sure. I'm really good at researching, but sometimes there's no replacement for experience. And she brought the skill set that even baking out of that 800 square foot kitchen, she was able to pull it together for Whole Foods. Wow, that's huge. That's huge. And I guess it just shows, you know, as you continue to scale, it's really bringing people who have experience on your team. And I'm sure you continue to do that as you grow and grow. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And at Audible, I worked with someone else on the executive team who said, when you hire someone, imagine them as your replacement. Don't feel threatened by that. Think about it as that's the best possible person. Exactly. And we had another woman on the podcast and she said, you know, every time I hire, it's like, can I fire myself from doing a task? And if I say <laughs> yes, great. That's a good thing, right? Yes. So exactly like what you've said, and it's a blessing versus feeling threatened, but for you to get to your goals and make it to the next step, you need people smarter than you in certain aspects to help take you there. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, I used to make the whole foods deliveries in my orange mini Cooper convertible. I love that. <laughs> Uh, do you miss those days? <laughs> I'm sure you still do like one-off cakes or anything. I am a horrible driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and I'm pleased to say that of all my hires, I think my drivers are the people that make me happiest because I think about those days where I was in the Mini Cooper and I'm like, no, no more. <laughs> yeah, and you have to be super careful that nothing happens to the cake. So there's just a lot online there. That's so funny. Yes, yes. And that now they are refrigerated trucks <laughs> driven by professional drivers. <laughs> I love that. How funny. Well, I want to ask a question, you know, looking kind of at your story, someone might think there's so much success that happened so quickly, but I'm sure there's been many challenges or problems that you face or surprises that you face as a business owner. Is there anything that you think stands out, whether it was very early in the business, a big setback that might have impacted you or, you know, most recently, I'm sure with COVID, there's probably so much you can talk about, but anything that comes to mind where you can speak about the challenges and how how you overcame it as a business owner? Well, if we're going to talk about COVID, demand for baked goods went way down. Mm. I mean, yes, people would order a bag of cookies on DoorDash, but they weren't hosting a bar mitzvah or a wedding or even sadly inviting people to their apartment for birthday cake. And I was determined not to lay off a single employee. You know, I could take the hit far better than they could. So we did two things. One is, I mean, it was email after email. Can I have my deposit back? My wedding was canceled. Oh, you know, I mean, we were on track to do 100 wedding cakes wow. and they all evaporated, wow. right? I'm pleased to say that now we're on track to do 175, I think, <laughs> um, this year, or at least 150. But anyway, so I said to my bakers and my decorators, we're going to bake for the camera. There's no wedding, yeah. but I want you to build the wedding cake and decorate it and take a picture because when weddings come back, we will have a gorgeous portfolio. And that's what we did. Incredible. And were you making money? Was that another source of income or more so just a different tactic to build awareness until things were opening oh, up again? It was totally for awareness. No one was buying the cakes. Wow. These wedding cakes and other highly decorated goods were all just for the camera to keep in the archive until the world reopened. I see. And 
it was something for my bakers and decorators to do as orders were slow. Yeah. And do you think, you know, that's amazing that you were able to keep all the employees and bakers that you had on staff, you know, in all your bakeries. Do you think a lot of that is attributed to the way you've managed your own cash in the business and having a safe reserve or, or did you just have enough orders to break even on the salaries? Like, how did you manage the numbers behind it? We had enough business. And when you add to that, we were the classic example of why there were PPP loans. Sure. Yeah. That we did not have anyone leave. And when we reopened, the numbers were good and our grant was forgiven. And we are proudly still standing. Oh, that's such a blessing. Well, I'm sure that was keeping you up at night, especially at that moment. You didn't even know what the world was going to look like, right? We didn't know it was going to open up again and your demand would be more this year. But I'm sure that was really tough as a business owner. And my question for you also is, how do you deal with your own mental health or self-care as an entrepreneur? Because I'm sure you're always thinking about the business, whether you're on site or not. It's on your mind, right? So how do you kind of deal with any self-care if you have any rituals that work for you? You know, if we're looking for the lemonade that comes out of the lemon of the past 18 months, one of the things I did, I, I had gone to the gym and I sort of phoned it in in every exercise class. And about a year ago, I started walking with weights. I live in a very hilly neighborhood and I have not particularly heavy weights, but it's been over a year now and I rarely, and I mean rarely miss a day. On odd days, I go clockwise and on even days, I go counterclockwise and it's meditative for me. I never bring my phone and I am always with my phone, but I do not bring my phone for my walk and I try to just take in what's around me. I live in a beautiful town. It's really hilly. There's a view of the Hudson River. I've met all the neighbors I never would have met And I clear my head and I think it was NPR that had a story about it's important to look for awe. And every time I go on a walk, I'm like, wow, that flower is awe-inspiring or that view or the way the light is hitting that tree or that kid is so cute. Yes, (laughs) But just taking with me for the rest of the day, that nugget of something that was beautiful. I love that. And you have zero distractions without bringing your phone and you're just simply focused on what's in front of you and the present moment, which is so nice. That's a great practice that you've incorporated during COVID. So one of the positive aspects of it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I want to close on one last question that we like to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth means bringing a little sweetness to somebody's life. And I am so proud of what we do and of the people I have the privilege of doing it with in my kitchen and at my stores. And, you know, every time we get an email or a handwritten note about someone saying that we made their day, we made their kid's birthday, the wedding was a huge success because of the cake. That sweetness is worth far more than dollars. Oh, I love that. Helene, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. That was so beautiful. Oh, it was totally my pleasure.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.